Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be going further afield to discuss last weekend's election in Thailand. My guest today is Erin Cook. Erin is an Australian journalist based in Southeast Asia, covering politics across the region, and she curates the Dali Mullet K Mullet newsletter. Hello, Erin. Hi, how are you going? Thanks for joining me. So voters in Thailand cast their votes last Sunday in the first election in four years. There was a big swing to the Move Forward Party and away from those parties that have been in power for really the last decade, who are roughly aligned with the Thai royalty and the Thai military. They've been in power basically since the last coup took place in 2014. Thai politics for the last few decades has been dominated by this rivalry between a series of political parties led by Taksin Shinawat and his successors. His sister took over after him. They managed to repeatedly win elections and hold government power. But on the other hand, you had forces aligned with the military and the royalty who have taken power through coups in 2006 and 2014. Um, And they did sort of maintain power in a mostly free election in 2019. But this year's election saw another political force take the lead. So Move Forward has won the most seats, uh, narrowly outpolling the Putai party, the successor to the Shinawatra parties that held power prior to the previous coups. Uh, Meanwhile, the party of the current prime minister went backwards. Erin, where did Move Forward come from? I am obsessed with this. It really does feel like they came out of nowhere, doesn't it? Um, It's... So Move Forward uh, kind of rose from the ashes of Future Forward, which was a an opposition party formed before the 2019 election. Um, they did pretty well, not as well as Move Forward has done, but they, I think, primary-wise, ranked in third in 2019. Um, so behind Putai and behind uh, the, the governing party at the time, Palang Pracharat, but I think the writing was kind of on the wall for the for the political elites in Bangkok. They were a bit worried about, you know, this rising force uh, that was deeply popular with young people um, and kind of agitating for, for some old taboos within Thailand, sort of a, not quite saying we don't want the monarchy, but maybe more of a let's talk about the role of the monarchy. So shortly after that election, virtually... I think the the entire leadership of the party was uh, disqualified from taking their seats as MPs and their position in the the opposition coalition was rolled back quite a bit. Um, And then eventually the party was forcibly dissolved by the constitutional court Um, and then moved forward, came from the ashes of that. Uh, The leader, Peter, was sort of a a junior leader within Future Forward. So those connections are are really deep. They're very clearly linked, even as they've tried to say sort of, you know, we're not Future Forward, we're a different party. Um, And they have spent, you know, those four years since 2019 kind of continuing to build a very, very broad progressive base um, and I've done an amazing job of building a coalition between, you know, these quite, for Thailand, quite out there sort of uh, political views, sort of got to get rid of the laissez-majesse laws, got to roll back the military, get rid of forcible conscription, that sort of thing, um, along with, you know, just middle-class people that are sick of the back and forth, the coups between Putai, Taksin and the military. So they've developed a really, really broad progressive base that um, 
I think people saw coming, but after the win on Sunday, it's much broader than I think anybody kind of expected. Putai and its and its predecessors, uh, you know, the Taxon movement, they were seen very much as a sort of populist, would you, safe to say, party that they uh, they had a kind of populist agenda. But I've seen some people describe Move Forward as social democratic, actually, as being a bit more clearly progressive of the left, whereas Putai was. I mean, they weren't anti-monarchy, but they were a bit more distant and they had their own agenda a bit. So what is that difference there between them? Because they're both clearly not fans of military coups and maybe want to reign in the monarchy a bit, but um, beyond that, there clearly are differences. Yeah, I I think it says a lot uh, maybe about when the parties were formed and when they became sort of... uh, uh, popular parties for Putai coming along in the 2000s that's very much still peak uh king Bumabal the the previous king who who died just before the 2019 election um so that's you know 20 years before his death and the monarchy at that stage is still deeply deeply popular um, and unquestionable, not on the table at all. Whereas for Move Forward and Future Forward, uh, coming along 20 years later, the the successions happened. The new king isn't as beloved, isn't as deeply popular as, as his father was. And there's a new generation now who has grown up with the decline of the previous king, the rise of the of the new one, and don't feel that sort of pressure to be deeply honouring, I suppose, of, of the monarchy. There's more space now, I think, to be able to question that place, to say, hang on, I want to say in the shape of Thailand in the years to come. And that was not the way 20 years ago. And I think that's the key difference. It's also probably reflective of uh, the generational shift that we see all across Southeast Asia with an enormous shift from sort of Gen X baby boomers into this massive millennial Gen Z group that are all, you know, all digital natives, all kind of raised as children through the financial crisis and then the political upsets of that and are now, again, living through another economic crisis or potential crisis. And I think that's really changed the the arithmetic on um, who you're backing. If, if you want you know, welfare cards to to pay for the bus, then who ties your people? If you want a restructuring of the economy that looks forward towards, uh, you know, digital first, more research, more development, then move forward to your people. On the surface, Thailand can look a little bit like, when you look at its constitutional structures, a bit like a European constitutional monarchy. But one key difference, which I think is partly legal, partly cultural, is the monarchy is much more active, right? Like the British monarchy, the Dutch monarchy, the, you know, Scandinavian monarchies or whatever, very much are kept in their box and understand that their role is not to intervene in politics. Whereas both, I mean, you mentioned the laissez-majeste laws, which make it very illegal to be critical of the Thai monarchy. And the the position that they're held in society is very different to like how, you know, the role of King Charles in the UK or something is. And that that seems quite crucial to what has happened. And that has then played, that seems to have been linked in with uh, the military um, and its role in bringing down previous uh, governments. I mean, there's been a bunch of coups, but particularly the coups in 2006 and 2014. 
there's a really interesting sort of aspect here about move forward. In 2019 and then kind of into the pandemic, there was a, a resurgent pro-democracy movement with a lot of protests targeting specifically the laissez-majest laws. There's a 15-year-old who got released on bail yesterday um, because she was done under laissez-majest. An old fella got done for posting pictures of rubber ducks, which is kind of the equivalent of, you know, a pepper pig about Xi Jinping or Winnie the Pooh, all these sorts of like um, very quite like low-hanging fruit are being swept up in a, in this new sort of proof of power from um, the new king. But move forward rather than sort of back away from this conversation, a couple of the MPs-to-be were deeply involved with these protest movements. So they've uh, kind of embraced this conversation rather than shied off at which Putai typically has in the past. Now, you mentioned Bangkok, the elites in Bangkok. Looking at the, uh, there's actually a useful, on the Wikipedia page for the Thai election, there's a useful map showing the distribution of the vote for the three. The Move Forward, Putai, and United Thai Nation, that's now the kind of primary party of the kind of current government, not the only one by any means, but sort of the primary one. United Thai Nation support much stronger in the south. Putai support much stronger in the north, which I believe has always been the trend. And move forward seemed particularly strong around Bangkok, the middle of the country, that kind of the dense, small, physically small areas around there. Thailand is really interesting in this respect. I think out of all of the elections that I watch in the region, Thailand is the most that is dependent upon geography. Like we see that a bit in Indonesia, but uh, not to this extent where it literally is, you can see where the provinces switch from central to north and that sort of thing. Um, so the north has been long time tax and chin and what stomping ground. Um, they back him in droves. A lot of the protests in the two previous coups were, you know, supporters from the north trucked into into Bangkok. Um, so him, oh, him, not him, the party doing okay up there still is uh, yeah, to be expected. Although Joel Selway, who's an excellent academic, wrote a piece for Thai Inquirer this week looking at the voting data that's been released so far. Um, and he's he says that that sort of Putai strongholds in the north may be shifting as the generations shift. Um, still too early to tell, of course, but that's uh, maybe just as much of a sign as the changing demography as as move forwards win. Um, the south is always a weird one. I'm not too familiar with the south. I always get a bit too in the weeds about the southern insurgency and read too much into that. Um but my impression is that the South typically supports military aligned um, because of that long-running insurgency along the Malaysia border, um, which is fairly straightforward, I think. The enormous win in Bangkok is stunning um, to me. So Move Forward's picked up 32 of 33 races there which makes for a really compelling future, I think. Um, the sort of the common wisdom is that whenever there's a, a people's movement prior or after a coup, it's people shipped in from the north 
to support Putai or shipped in from the south to support the royalists. If something goes pear-shaped with move forward, holding government, taking government, you've now got millions of Bangkokians who are middle class. That's a very different game and that's going to look very different if it turns as violent as it has in the past. So I think that's... Let's talk a little bit about the voting system and the constitutional structure a bit. So there's a House of Representatives, 500 members directly elected. There's also a Senate that are 250 members basically appointed by the old um, military junta before they stepped out. And so uh, maybe not universally, but overwhelmingly royalist, pro-military, not big fans of of um, move forward, I'm sure. Um, in the House, uh, they use a system now called mixed-member majoritarian or parallel voting system, so a similar system used in Japan and Italy. The way it works is there are a bunch of individual electorates that use first-past-the-post, and then there's also a proportional element, but the the two don't interact. It's not compensatory. Those extra seats, those ones are proportional, but it doesn't do anything to undo any disproportionality that exists in the rest. So the alternative system, mixed member proportional, where those PR seats are distributed in a way to counterbalance the the single member seats. They actually used that system in 2019. And that's what they use in Germany, New Zealand, Scotland, places like that. Um, and so it does actually make it a bit fairer, that system. And they've moved away from that this year, which I thought was really interesting. And I think it's had an effect in the results um, because 400 of the 500 seats are these first-past-the-post seats, these single-member districts. So it's not a very proportional system. And from what I see, you know, move forward, they they did win the most local electorate seats, but they didn't win as many as their vote would suggest. They won 28% of the first-past-the-post seats, and as far as I can tell, they won about 39% of the vote. So overall, they're on track for about 30% of the seats, even though they won almost 40% of the vote. It's also true for Putai, whereas on the other hand, there's a bunch of small parties that won quite a few electorates with very small shares of the vote. So that's really interesting. I think it probably has hurt the opposition in this election that, you know, they they do have a majority if you put together Move Forward and Putai in the House, we'll get to the Senate, but not as big a majority as they would have done if they'd used the 2019 system, for example. The way it's all been reworked since the 2014 coup and especially with the constitution in 2017, uh, I think this is another sort of tactic from the elite to just consistently change the rules um, in a way that would favour perhaps not their parties but favour anybody against sort of uh, Putai, like tax and Shinawat is the, the spectre that haunts Bangkok. Yeah, I always suspect that it, <laughs> everything's aimed at him. Um, but that's really interesting. I find it very difficult to understand. And I don't understand, you know, if you work in the market on the outskirts of Chiang Rai, how are you going to understand this? You know, people just have to know how to vote in their area, I guess. But it does what it does mean is... If you expected, and it didn't quite happen this way, that there's vast regions of the north where Taksin's successor parties, Putai, people like that, are racking up massive majorities and they're winning, they're not just winning 50%, but they're winning 80, 90%, things like that. Those votes are going to waste. Whereas if you had a proportional system, they would win more seats there. So it does give an advantage to a side that wins their seats by smaller majorities and doesn't waste their votes. In the same way that in the US House of Representatives, the Republicans 
have a slight advantage because the Democrats rack up these enormous majorities in big cities. I think there's an element of that in Thailand as well that may have made them think this will help the government parties, the pro-coup, pro-military parties. That's my theory. I haven't I haven't been paying attention to this till quite recently, but that majoritarian element in this case, you would often expect that it would favour the big parties, but it appears to have favoured those smaller pro-government parties that don't get an enormous vote but get it in the right places. And I mean, I won't go into anything about how they drew the electoral boundaries and whether that was fair or not. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, that may have also been an element as well, and I haven't looked enough into the data. But that's that's the system. The one other thing here that's crucial is the prime ministership is not decided by just having a majority in the House. You need a majority in a joint sitting of the parliament, which means it includes those 250 members in the Senate, which again, I, I, I doubt all 250 would, would it be against them, but a large majority of them would be favouring the current government party. So you need 376 votes for a majority and move forward and put tie between them have 293. So they need to find another uh, 80 odd votes between smaller parties in the house and maybe a few senators who are willing to you know respect their mandate or whatever where do you think that's going to go i've seen a few sort of uh scenarios particularly from the academics i think Susanna patton at um lowy institute had a really great piece this week about it as well so the most likely scenario from what i understand is that some senators that are a bit more flexible than some of the others, will likely support Move Forward and Putai, um, at least initially, and then uh, sort of, and that'll stop any nascent uh, protest movement. I know that Thailand is very much on edge that something will, you know, bubble up in the next few weeks. Um, but And it's two months. The new government won't take... Uh, won't take effect for another 60 days. So there's plenty of time to work it all out. So, yeah, that sort of respecting the mandate thing seems the most likely, um, which I think is a really interesting way to do that. Putting Move Forward and Putai together is going to have just regular coalition issues. Putai has always been top dog and now it's not, which is never nice. And I think Move Forward is really going to struggle with governing it's the same problem with any sort of startup progressive party. You can say all sorts of things about the way the country should be run. In practice, if you don't want to get knocked out by an army coup, then you're going to have to rein it in a little bit. And for move forward, their supporters want to see, you know, a reform to the laissez-majest laws or an economic restructuring. And those are the kind of things that are a direct threat to political elites. So whether senators support this and then let them hang themselves with their own noose or stop it now, I think it's more likely that they'll let them through and then see where it goes. It's really fascinating what Thailand's relationship with democracy is because there is a certain amount of respect for democracy to a limit. But then there are forces that are, you know, it does make me think sometimes of like the early 19th century or something in, in the UK where you had this sort of tension between, you know, the the forces of order and the forces of democracy that were slowly inching forward. But royalty still has a role. The military is still has an outsized influence. But, you know, this isn't Myanmar. Like there was an expectation that it, they would go back to a democratic system. You know, they have what seem to be largely free elections, mostly fair, 
mostly, maybe not quite meeting the standards of some countries. As a whole, the election, um, not to speak of, you know, yeah, the way boundaries have been drawn and the constitution in 2017 and all that, but on the day and in the lead up, it has been largely safe, which in this region is enough sometimes. It was safe. Um, There were, you know, the sort of reports that you get everywhere, like old ladies struggling to get into the booth and that sort of thing. But largely things went pretty well. And I think, you know, it's a low bar, but it's also a good sign. I'm really fascinated by the Senate as well, because you see uh, the the arguments that were made about its creation was about compromise and um, ensuring moderation and this kind of thing. But it's one of those things where it's like when you create an appointed Senate that has that kind of bias, that that sort of pressure for compromise and moderation only goes one way, right? Like a different kind of government would have a free hand in the Senate. And you see, I mean, the history of upper houses in in Australia in the 19th century was they were all very conservative institutions and were spun the same way. But what it effectively meant was certain governments would get everything blocked and other governments would have a free hand in everything sailing through the upper house. And so I, I assume even if they can form government, whether they can get legislation passed, make reforms that they want to have happen, who knows how much of that they'll be able to get done because it's not it's not just a, a house of review. It's, it's very much a, a house that represents a particular kind of attitude in Thai politics that's not going to be in line with the new government if there is a new government. That's it. Uh, There's a very, very interesting book that came out either at the start of this year or the end of last year, Democracy and Development or Development and Democracy, Slater and Wong. Unbelievable. Very good. And it, in one chapter, compares the, uh, the experience of Indonesia getting its military out of you know, meddling in government, um, with Thailand, which has had similar experiences but in a much more dramatic way. They kind of just said, you know, in Indonesia there was an existing political party, Golkar, which gave the military and military-aligned elites uh, an excellent off-ramp into electoral politics that has effectively kept the military out since the fall of Suharto. Whereas in Thailand these sort of conservative parties don't have the infrastructure Golkar had. They don't really have any sort of like, not that anybody ever celebrates Indonesian political parties for their ideologies, but they don't have much of an ideological base. They're all very much about, uh, you know, cults of personality and that sort of thing. And that's really keeping the military elite in this sort of pattern of back and forth, back and forth. They want them to still have a role. They're not willing to give up that tool. That's it. And without a party, there is no off-ramp to that. And then, of course, there's a monarchy, which is a third issue that Indonesia doesn't have to deal with. So (laughs) in that respect, different. So Thailand's also a neighbour to Myanmar. What does a potential change of government in Thailand mean for what's been going on there? This is huge. I think this election has been very, very closely watched um, in Myanmar and with the exile community that, of course, lives in Thailand now. Most of Myanmar's media is worked out of Chiang Mai now. So a lot of people watching it very, very closely. The relationship between Thailand and Myanmar in the last couple of years of, of this government, of the Prayut Chanacha government, hasn't been particularly inspiring for people who'd like to see peace return to Myanmar. The The militaries are really, really close together, so there was just no chance whatsoever of Prayut Chanacha pulling the junta into line over in Myanmar. So there's very much a hope that we move forward taking government, if and when that happens, that 
Thailand will become a really, really strong advocate for the pro-democracy movement there. Even in just like a sort of base level, a change in government is going to be really good. The first year of the Myanmar junta, Thailand quietly was you know, happy for, for Myanmar nationals to jump across the border and wait it out in Chiang Mai and other cities along the, the border in the north. But there have been increasing numbers of dissidents that are forcibly returned by Thai police and things like that. So I think Move Forward is far less likely to get involved in that and far more likely to make a stand, whether through ASEAN or in the bilateral relationship. Um, so I think that's that's a really exciting part of of what's happening here. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroommastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. And if you're interested in politics in Southeast Asia, I would also recommend signing up for Erin's newsletter, Dali Mullet Kemulet. I'm a paid subscriber, so consider signing up. It's great. There's a sort of a spin-off newsletter at the moment just about the Indonesian election that's coming next year as well, right, Erin? Yes, that one's huge. Third biggest in the world. Well, third biggest democracy in the world. <laughs> Yeah, cool. Well, maybe we'll talk about doing another episode in February when that comes along, hey? Beautiful. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.